Welcome to the Buddhist Ta Berlin podcast. Join us for live recordings from classes, insightful talks, and guided meditations. Very good to uh, be here this evening to, in honor of my teacher, in honour of uh, Bhante Urgen Sangharakshita. Uh, and it, it, it is an honour to be able to, uh, to talk about Bhante in, in Berlin. Um, you know, I think it might even be the first time I've ever talked about Bhante on, a, on the anniversary of his birth. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it is a great honour to be, to be doing that. Um, and, but I must admit, I don't quite know what to say. Um, uh, un unusually, I'm feeling uh, a little bit lost for words. Um, I, I was a bit tired today, so I didn't feel like thinking. Um, uh, so this is going to be a much more sort of spontaneous uh, talk, I think, a spontaneous kind of exploration. I think also I, I feel the weight of it, really. I'm talking about the man, the person who is the most important person in my life. And because my mother and father are very hugely important in my life, but if you like my spiritual father and mother, I'm talking about this evening. And uh, I'm just very conscious I wouldn't be here. None of us would be here if it wasn't for Sangharakshita. Um, and, you know, it, it, there, there's a, a lot of emotion I can feel sort of um, there. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's a little bit strange. It's a little bit strange because I, I, I'm talking about something very intimate. I think in some ways it's, it's sort of slightly difficult, I think, talking about a teacher, a spiritual friend, um, you know, because one, can, one, can, one doesn't want to sort of fall into something that sounds rather cultish. Uh, do you see what I mean? Something, you know, in, in, in talking about him, I'm talking about my responses to him. I'm not talking about how you should respond to him or how anybody else should respond to him. I'm talking about my responses to him. Um, and I don't expect other people to have the responses to him that I have had. Um, I was a little bit slightly uncomfortable with photos of Bante on shrines. I mean, that's not a bad one. But sometimes when he's you know, wearing a suit and jacket and tie and looking very, very normal. You know, it, it almost looks a bit, especially in Berlin, it looks a bit like those sort of GDR leaders, you know what I mean? And I think, <laughs> God, I wonder, I wonder how people are sort of thinking, what are they, what are they feeling about this? So it's a bit weird, you know, not exactly charismatic, um, not exactly mythic. Um, but, but anyway, that's quite a nice one. Um, so anyway, yes, I'm very honoured to be speaking about, about Bhante, about Ergin Sangharachita. So perhaps the best thing to do is to start at the beginning. Um, you know, when I first heard about him, when I first met him, I was living in a village in um, the county of Sussex in the south of England. And uh, one way or another, I found out that there were classes being run by the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, which I thought was such a weird name. And, you know, 
I went along because I was desperate to find Buddhism, but I thought, well, they're friends of Western Buddhists. So how can friends of Western Buddhists be proper Buddhists and they're Western anyway? You know, I thought, this is, what, a, what a strange thing. But anyway, there was nothing else in town. So I went along and uh, I, I eventually met the person teaching there. It was an order member named Buddha Dasa. And uh, I immediately connected with, with what, was, uh, what was being done. And they, uh, Buddha Dasa, was, it was a, their kind of regulars class, full, full on, full dress, metabhavna, and then the sevenfold puja. Strangely, I knew by the end of the puja that I'd devote my life to Buddhism. I was 17, I just knew. I just knew that that was it. Um, I don't know why, but this was what I was looking for. And then I became aware of, well, I became aware of two people that seemed to be very important to the movement in the way Buddha Dasa would talk and finding these FWBO newsletters. There was Banti and there was Sangharakshita. I thought they were two different people, just because the entries about Sangharakshita and Banti were slightly different. You know, there was a bit more formality about Sangharakshita and Banti was a bit more sort of, you know, it seemed a bit more intimate. So I thought there were two special people and there was Sangharakshita who, who seemed to be the sort of higher one, but a bit aloof. And then there was Banti, who was a bit lower, but who everybody loved. <laughs> and, uh, you know, after a, a, a week or two, but, uh, you know, I, was I, was, I think I was saying to Buddha Dasa about, well, you know, you know Sangharakshita and Banti, and he said, no, no, they're the same person. <laughs> they're the same person. Banti is a, 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 a kind of honorific that you call a Buddhist monk. So, so that was the first sort of hurdle. Uh, overcome. And I think the first contact was really listening to lectures on reel-to-reel -reel tape. Um, you know, and, they, and I, I kind of knew I was listening to my teacher. You know, I was very open, but I mean, these lectures on the Noble Eightfold Path, the Bodhisattva Ideal, I mean, they were just absolutely sensational. And then the Tantric Path, creative central symbols of the Tantric Path, I mean, like I was in heaven, you know, and there wasn't much literature. There was the survey of Buddhism in an old Indian edition. There was mind reactive and creative. There was the three jewels, a few other things. And I just was devouring it all and, and you know, trying to find a way you know, forward with it. Um, and uh, it was clear that Buddha Dasa had a great reverence uh, for Bhante. Um, uh, really a great deep feeling for him. I remember him showing me photographs of an early seminar. So we're not, I should just say, we're talking about 1974. And there was an early seminar. Though you can see photographs of this online. There's one photograph of it in the community uh, up in Hassenheide. And it's Banti, but it's Banti did this seminar under canvas in a t big tent. He was on a, he was on a sabbatical down in the West Country. And, uh, he was doing the seminar on the Udana, this very early Buddhist text, and Buddha Dasa had been on it, and he actually started to lead study for us on this text. And, you know, the way he was, Bhante was reading this text was, you know, he was reading it as being a, the closest, one of the closest texts you get to how the Buddha was actually interacting with 
his disciples that the, without things being very formed or formulated, it's very fresh, very alive. And, and looking back, of course, he was looking at himself and what he was doing in the West in that way. But it's the, it's the look that is so interesting of Banti in those days. Long, sort of black, um, you know, hair, um, going slightly grey, a bit greasy, rings on his fingers, jacket, jeans. I mean, there was even a photograph of him. Do you remember those, what we used to call basketball boots, bumpers? So he's wearing those. So that, that's how he kind of looks. And I remember Buddha Dasa saying, you know, we were talking about, um, you know, the Dharma now and teaching it. And Bhante said, well, if the Buddha is teaching now, he'd have worn T-shirt and jeans. That's how he would have taught. And um, um, I found that quite, I found that very, very, well, very inspiring at the time to hear that. Interestingly enough, I should also say that coming to Berlin, I think it happens every time and it's very vivid this time. I think of Bhante at that time. And I wonder how he would be in Berlin at that age, in his 40s, with that look. I've got a feeling he'd just completely go mad. I mean, dharmically. I mean, in terms of teaching, communicating. I think the sort of energy and, and, and the sort of liveliness of things. So I've been, I've been in a way, I've been doing a visualisation of that emanation of Sangharakshita while I've been here, um, just trying to imagine, you know, what, what, how he would have been. I think he would have just been so pleased and inspired and, and, and so on. Uh, so anyway, the, these were the beginnings of my encounters with Bante. Um, I, I, yeah, I must move on. I, I do get a bit carried away. Um, eventually, I joined the community that Buddha Dasa had started in Brighton. I left home and so on. Um, and then we got news that Banti was coming to visit. He'd been to New, on his first visit to New Zealand. He'd done ordinations in New Zealand. He came back and he'd been hearing from Buddha Dasa about this centre starting in Brighton. He had a very great fondness for Brighton because he used to, he used to go and teach the, at the Brighton Buddhist Society when he first came back from England, had a lot of connections. And I was so excited because my guru was coming. I mean, that's the way I thought. I really, it's not embarrassing, but my guru, I'm going to meet my guru. And, uh, you know, so the, the great day came and the great moment came and Banti came into this tiny sitting room and it was really underwhelming. Um, uh, first of all, he was much shorter than I thought. I think listening to the lectures and that great voice, I... I expected a sort of towering figure, so he was quite short. Yes, the long greasy hair, a kind of grey raincoat, um, great big boots, like kind of working boots, um, sort of tweedy jacket and um, rather nondescript trousers. And he had these great glasses in those days. They were, they were very trendy now. In those days, they were really old-fashioned. I think got them in India. And they were kind of bent weirdly and kind of stuck together. And um, extremely bad teeth. Um, <laughs> sort of black stumps. Um, yeah, oh yeah, you've got, there you go, there you go. He didn't have the sideboards then, but that, that's very close to it, yeah. And, um, and... Uh, 
uh, you know, it's, uh, hello, hello uh, you know, I mean, it, ridiculous, kind of expecting a teaching or a recognition. Um, and um, he used to have this quite strange habit sometimes of very soft hands, gently taking your hand and looking away from you and saying, hello. It's very, very spooky. Um, but anyway, there he was for a few days staying with us and uh, dedicating our shrine room. I remember that, sitting in the shrine room with him for the dedication ceremony in his robes, um, long hair, and um, he seemed to spend the whole meditation just saying his mantras, you know, on this small white mala he had, and uh, very still and very... A uh, very kind of mysterious kind of feeling, um, and uh, I still I know that I'm meditating more deeply when I have a kind of image of Banti meditating or a memory of meditating with him. It's a sort of a kind of nimitta, as they call it, a sign that I'm moving a bit more deeply into meditation. He's the stillest person I've ever sat with. You know, really, really still. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, you know, in group, we had a lovely little sangha there, and I, but I was always trying, almost crawling over the floor to try and sit at his feet and, you know, be like that. It must have been so irritating. So. And, and Banti was very, I mean, he was, he was friendly, he was encouraging, but he never had any kind of, he didn't do any sort of social games. He was very, very much himself. I mean, the weirdest thing that happened during that, during that visit was sitting with him in this tiny little sitting room we had. And I, and I said, would you like some tea? He said, yes, I'll have some tea, thank you. And so I you know, made him some tea and we sat down and I'm sitting by him and I'm, he's not making any conversation at all. He's just sort of looking straight ahead, this long hair, and I'm, do I say something? Do I keep quiet? You know, I really... And at a certain point, he just leaned over to the, the mantelpiece above the fire, picked up an incense stick and started to clean his ears. <laughs> and I was in sort of shock and horror. And, I mean, it was very interesting what I thought at the time. What would mum say? You know, what would my... You know, it was real sort of... And then you think, it's a teaching, you know. And, but, but what teaching? You know? And then I, when I lived in it, when I lived in India, I, you see that a lot in public. You know, people cleaning their ears in public on trains and things like that. It wasn't, you know, there wasn't any kind of big deal, but it was a bit of a shock. But but we did make a connection. We did make a connection, and I asked if I could write to him, and I started to write to him, and he'd reply very very encouraging letters and I was uh, very keen on keeping the shrine and there was this very beautiful man who came, an old man named Carl Ragg who used to run the Brighton Buddhist Society and he came when Bhante came to, to, to see Bhante and Bhante was very close to his wife who died and Carl, I mean he really was a wonderful gentle man and he came and he, he, he came in and he knew me and he, he, he said take these and they were a beautiful set of, of heavy brass puja bowls, Tibetan puja bowls, beautifully turned. And he gave them to me. He said, Banti gave these to us 
to the Brighton Buddhist Society, now they're yours. Never forget those words. And uh, I told Bhante about this, and Bhante remembered them, and, he's, and then he gave me the teaching on how to fill puja bowls. Gave me this very, very, because he knew I was very keen on keeping shrines, and how you must, uh, you go from left to right, very mindfully, slowly, and as you pour the water into each bowl, you just chant, Om, Ah, Hum. The Om purifies the water. The Ah turns it into a magnificent bowl, like a Sambhogakaya bowl, full of flowers and jewels and perfumes. And the Hum symbolizes its emptiness. A beautiful little teaching, and... Uh, which I cherish, and I eventually composed a shrine keeper's manual, which I sent to him, and uh, with all sorts of reflections, and uh, and he he wrote back that this must be published. This is very good. It never did get published, and well, until many many years later, when I remembered it, I'd lost the text. I remembered it about ten years ago. It just all came back, and. Uh, and uh, well, we, we printed it out, uh, we use it at Papaloka and it, it, it was the Sheffield Centre that was asking me about it. So that precious treasure teaching from Bhante continues. And uh, so he took me seriously. That, that was one of the things. And, um, you know, that, that was something when he died. Um, that's what I felt more than anything after Bhante died, the, the incredibly intense... Uh, gratitude and um, you know a lot of sobbing um, because this man took me seriously you know when you're 17 people don't take you seriously in a way quite sort of rightly but he took me seriously he took my aspirations seriously and encouraged my my aspirations and um, that's an incredible gift isn't it you know from from such a great man he took an interest in me, encouraged me, and um, took me more seriously than I took myself. So we got into correspondence, and um, yes, and, and, but I was awe-inspired by Bante. I mean, it must have been a bit, uh, you know, probably a bit uncomfortable for him to be around uh, someone. Well, I don't know, I never talked to him about it, but, you know, I know sometimes when, believe it or not, sometimes people can be a bit awe-inspired around me and they, they don't know what to say. And I sometimes think, oh, come on. And then I think, yeah, but hang on, how are you with Bhante? And you're not Bhante, you're not at that level. So calm down and communicate, you know. Um, anyway, um, where can we go? Where are we going? I mean, there are so many sort of tales to tell, but perhaps we'll jump ahead to another encounter, another taking of me seriously um, in quite strange ways. So I'd move, eventually I moved to London. This is, I'm still not ordained. I moved to London. Um, and um, there's, there's, there's a lot of lovely things that happen this time, interactions with him. Um, I was still kind of involved with Brighton because I <laughs> pretended to run the bookshop that we had there, not very well. And I would go down there to see how it was going. I mean, it was usually an excuse just to go to Brighton. Um, and we travelled down together one time because he was going to launch the first volume of his memoirs, which came out as The Thousand Petal Lotus. 
So we traveled down together, we, we, we stayed um, in one of the, the communities with a, an older member named Visantra. And uh, uh, in the morning I, I came downstairs and, uh, and um, he was having breakfast with Visantra. And then Visantra said, right, I think I'll go off and do yoga. You know, rather sort of, I thought, you don't do yoga. Anyway, he, he went out and I started to make tea and toast. And um, by the way, the sartorial appearance now, it's the period of the maroon suit, um, the plum colored suit and the cherry red DM's uh, shoes. Um, you know, that's, so that's what he looked like. So he's kind of moving on sartorially. Um, anyway, he's sitting there. And I, and I said, can I make you tea? And, and he yes, I'll have a cup. Said, oh, by the way, I've decided to ordain you. <laughs> and I had asked for ordination. And I, I said, I don't know what to say. And I'm sort of shaking and spilling the tea and the toast is burning. And uh, I mean, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? But, you know, you know so young, so um, excited. Yes, I've decided to, to ordain you. He said, young people have a lot to offer our movement. I mean, 19 was young in those, 30 was old. Um, so I was a young person. And then he went into this whole thing about, and you know, you don't have to go through things in order to lead this life. You know, I hadn't had a relationship by that time, uh, or had I? No, I hadn't, that was about to come. Um, and I think, um, I think people, you know, they did wonder about this kid who was so enthusiastic and so unformed, and quite legitimately, I think, those older members, but he was absolutely encouraging. And, um, you know, and uh, he said, yes, you'll be ordained in the summer, either, you know, either at our new retreat centre, Papaloka, which we were getting, this is 1976, and I was just in heaven. I mean, just to be told that I was going to be ordained was sort of enough. You know, what an affirmation. And, um, you know, that, uh, that evening he did this launch of, of his Thousand Petal Lotus. And there's one amazing moment I saw. Banti had his back to the entrance to this meeting place. And he suddenly turned and a man came in and he gave him this incredible embrace. Um, a huge American man um, named Gary, who was an old, an old, an old friend of Banty's. But it was like Banty was aware of what was behind him. You know, because there was no noise. He just knew somebody. This energy was coming in, and this incredible kind of contact. And not long after that, he ordained this guy because he was sort of reconnecting with things. He, he became Dharmadasa, I think. A big American drummer, you know, amazing guy. Um, and um, it, it was a bit like that with Banty. In those days, I, I, I really did wonder if he was reading my mind. In a way, that is kind of the way you'd think in those days. But, I mean, I, he'd be answering questions before I'd actually completed the sentence. He seemed to know what... I mean, maybe it was so obvious what I was going to say. I don't know. But, I mean, it, it was quite strange to be around. Anyway, it got even stranger because we got the last train back from Brighton to London. We were going to go back up to the, the, what became the London British Centre. So we're on this last train, which was very slow, and I was tired. And 
he obviously didn't want to talk particularly. He'd been around the second hand. He loved second hand bookshops, Banty, and he'd bought some second hand books. And he said, Why don't you read this? He obviously didn't particularly want to chat. So it was a life of the Buddha, very nicely bound. So I'm, I'm there and I, and, I, and I just fall asleep as we go, just doze off. And every now and then I'd kind of wake up and he'd be on the edge of the seat opposite me like this. with this incredible expression on his face, his eyes really looking into me and this lovely smile as though he was sort of delighting in what I'd see. And I'd sort of come to think, oh God, this is weird. And kind of, you know. <laughs> but it really was extraordinary. And the, the thing was, the feeling was, he was really seeing me. And in a way I was clearer to see when I was asleep than when I was awake. And there was this sort of sense of delight. There was no threat. There was no sense of, you know, somebody coming on to me or anything like that. If anything, there was a sort of sense of protection. But all, you know, as we, this train going on for hours through the night, me dozing off and this, you know, that, that, you know, those, that, you know, they, they say, don't they, that, that, that great teachers, they, they can quite naturally practice the, the right of fascination, the red right, you know, they, 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 you know they, there is this quality of, of, of it's, it's said to be one of the enlightened activities, the red right of attracting people to the Dharma and Bhante fascinated me. And he fascinated me not through trying to sort of flatter me or butter me up or anything like that, it was just this mystery this incredibly attractive mystery. You felt that this man has something. He's very, in a way, he's very ordinary, terribly ordinary. And on the other hand, there's something going on that you really don't understand and you don't know, but it's, it, you, you want to be part of it. When I lived in London, uh, one weekend, Lokamitra, very, you know, another great order member who I, I regard as a Kalyanamitra, who started our activities in India, he said to a few of us, some, some of these young guys, that we were all living together in these squats. I mean, yeah, we did squats. It didn't just happen in Berlin. Um, you know, and near, near the, the London centre that we had then, he said, come on, we're going to go away for a weekend. We're going to go up to a forest in Norfolk. We're going to go into this farmhouse and we're going to have a kind of weekend together practising the Dharma. And so we went up there and then... He said, well, I'm, I'm just going to go off to do something and you, you get everything set up. And, and then he came back and out of the car came Bante. And Lokamitra said, Bante's decided to do a study weekend for us. It was a surprise treat. He'd set it all up. And, you know, we were just amazed, you know. And he, he, you know, and he did this wonderful study weekend on a Pali text called the Mangala Sutta which at some point I actually must honour and do a study weekend on it. You know, I keep meaning to do it. And uh, it was just lovely, just being with this man, expounding these old Indian verses and referring to the Pali and, you know, giving all sorts of, you know, very, very sort of natural teachings, very, very practical for us. And, you know, I still run on those teachings. I still they're still a part of me and uh, I still refer to them. Um, then was, there was my 
ordination retreat that didn't happen. It happened not so long afterwards. The the, the circumstances of, of of that it happened on a weekend retreat, um, and the circumstances that led up to it again are rather strange. So at that time, Bante was living in a cottage in North Norfolk, uh, writing, keeping away from things as much as possible. And uh, we didn't have a telephone in our house, but there was a telephone in the centre. He didn't have a telephone. And one day, a, a, a woman order member, a Dharmacharini named Dharmadina, a very respected order member, came and knocked on the door of our community. And she said, Richard, that was my name, I answered the door, you've got to come to the centre. Bant is on the phone, he wants to talk to you. So, oh, God, what's, what's this? So he kind of legged it round to the centre. And... Uh, there's Banty. So you've got to remember, Banty's in a, in, a, in a public telephone box, one of those red telephone box, boxes in a small village in Norfolk. You know, coins are going into the, into the thing. And he said, uh, hello, I've got Padmaraja with me, another order member. He wants to talk to you. So Padmaraja comes on the phone. You've got to cancel everything next Friday. You have to be in your community next Friday at 12 o'clock with Gary. I've got some very important information for you. Really intense. Hands the phone back to Banty. Banty said, you've got that then. Bye. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's such a bizarre, surreal kind of image, you know. Anyway, so we, we're there. Paparaja appears and he hands us two beautiful small blue envelopes, Basildon Bond paper. We open it up and it's Banty saying to us, uh, after consulting with the order members who know you, I've decided to ordain you. You can either be ordained later on in the summer at our new retreat centre or next weekend. I'm fine with either. And we just immediately said, next weekend, you know, we, you know, we didn't want to lose that chance. And um, so it was an incredible weekend. It was the summer of 76, very, very hot. Uh, Banti appears in his deep yellow robes and this kind of brocade uh, Tibetan shirt and, um, you know, this incredible sort of mala. And Lokomitra said, oh, Banti, I've never seen you dressed like this before. And Banti said, well... As Richard is into things Tibetan, I thought I ought to dress up. <laughs> yeah. In this kind of, you know, so, and, and, you know, and then I said, and what about the mala banter? You know, what? He, he said, ah, these are beads given to me by my teacher, Mr. Chen. They're called moon and star beads, because you can see there's a moon and little stars on it. You know, they're, I think they're lotus seeds. And every so often there were these white beads. I said, what, what are the white beads? And he said, hmm, they're every 27 beads for certain practices. You know, and I'm certain practices, you know. Um, and it was a magic weekend. He led study on the shepherd's search for mind, talking about the nature of mind. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you about my ordination, but something happened that... Um, that well, I've never been able to erase. Something happened, something, I, you know, a transmission of the Dharma. Um, 
I can only describe it that. Sometimes I've thought that even if there weren't all the lectures that Banti gave and all the other interactions and everything else, just that would have everything. Just that very simple ceremony and being named Padmavadra. Um, it's all there. It's all there in that. Um, and, you know, every day I meditate on that. I renew that uh, connection. And um, sometimes people say, you know, when you do your meditation on your chosen Buddha or Bodhisattva, you know, what does that mean? What does it do? And I can't tell you. I still can't tell, explain what that is. I have to do it. And it's the most meaningful thing in my life because it renews this connection with, um, with something that happened. All the Dharma is in it. Um, and uh, very pure, very intense, and too much in many ways for me at the time. Uh, it took me, a, it, I think it probably took me about 14 or 15 years, I think, to, you know, to really start getting a, a, a sense of what had happened, um, you know, with, with, with that act. But one thing I do know, again, looking back, it was this thing of being taken utterly seriously, more seriously than I took myself, that my teacher, that Bhante, witnessed, you know, we say now, witnessed going for refuge, witnessed my aspiration. Um, it's quite something when somebody you really look up to takes you utterly seriously. It, it, it's sort of overwhelming, actually. Um, so it took quite a long time to to kind of get used to that. And my relationship with Banti got a bit weird after that because you know, I went on a seminar, the Mind and Buddhist Psychology seminar with him after that, 10 days of intensive study of Abhidharma. Very, very difficult text with him magisteriously communicating the Dharma. And, you know, I used to say it was a bit like you, you've got, you know, those water wings, you know, those kind of plastic things we have as children to sort of stay swimming and you're in a great and mighty ocean and there's this great ocean liner sailing through and you know you're almost drowning and you're trying to float I mean that was what it was like studying with Bounty this absolutely brilliant teaching and reality and you know I, I, I got into this thing of wanting attention from him and wanting more teachings and I mean, it's sort of crazy really and he just wasn't having it um, and there was this quite difficult period for a few years where, you know, when, when I was in this state of sort of, of wanting attention, he'd go completely non-stick, you know, like a Teflon fi frying pan. You know, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche says that sometimes the teacher uh, emits a sort of black light, uh, which the, the pupil's ego can get no purchase on. And you're just sort of, you don't know what's happening. And there was no sort of question of, oh, can we sit down and have a chat about this? You know, and it wasn't like that. You know, it, re it, it really wasn't like that. So it was, it, was, it was an uncomfortable period. But it changed when I went to India. Because not so long after that, um, I went to India uh, with Lokamitra to help Lokamitra start things up. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, that was massive culture shock for me. And then we heard Banti was coming. Banti was coming to see what we were doing on his way to New Zealand. And his first visit in 
since he'd been in the West. And uh, I was determined not to get into this weird state. And I thought, don't, don't do that. Just serve, just give. And of course, because I'd been around Indian people where there's a very high culture of service and courtesy and <laughs> devotion, it was, it was just wonderful. I knew what to do and I was his sort of attendant. So I'd wash his robes, I'd wash his clothes, I'd make him tea, I'd put up his mosquito net, I'd gather up the garlands after these amazing talks we had. I'd, I'd put, you know, his, 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 his sandals on his feet. Um, and it was heaven. I mean, it was the best period of my life in some ways because, well, one of the best, because I knew how to be with him. Um, you know, in, in England, it was like, do, I, do we have a community, do we, how do you talk? I have a lot of faith and a lot of, well, not faith, a lot of devotion. That's my temp temperament. And this was the best expression, just service, just wonderful service. And Bunty noticed it, you know, when he wrote about it, he said that he noticed how quiet I was and how happy I seemed. And uh, in a way, in some ways, I feel... Um, you know, turning out, sort of ending up giving talks and visiting centres and ordaining people. It's not quite right. I think the world I'd prefer to live in is a world where I'm just sitting by my teacher, serving him. Um, I think I'd much prefer that, um, anticipating his need. And when Bhante died, people were saying, oh, he hasn't gone, he's more present than ever. I didn't feel that. I felt a tremendous sort of loss, you know, the, and the loss was what I couldn't just go and see him and just be in the presence of this consciousness. Didn't have to talk about anything, didn't have to sort of do that, uh, but just being with him was, was, was everything to me. Again, I don't want to sound cultish. I'm saying, I, I, you know, or that every, or that's the way he was or whatever it was, but that's the way I felt. I was in the presence of a greater consciousness, even when he was an old man, even when he wasn't well. Um, I've sat with, with Bhante and felt I was in the presence of something great that was deeply mysterious and put me in touch with, well, what I'm, what I'm, the, the life I'm supposed, I'm supposed to lead. So I, I said, no, 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 I, I, I don't, it's not great, you know. You know, the, I could see why you had disciples of the Buddha after the Buddha's parinirvana saying, the light has gone out of the world. Why there was weeping and wailing among the non-enlightened disciples of the Buddha. Well, I'm not enlightened, so there is weeping and wailing. You know, there's nobody like him. But on the other hand, the message from Bhante so often to me was that I needed to take responsibility for myself. That I could take responsibility for myself and indeed for others. Um, and I should. My nature is not to want to do that. My, the, you know, the, I could tell you the history of my so-called spiritual life. I like being with a big person who's leading the way and I get in and I serve and, you know, feel protected and, you know, in some ways that's quite good. But it's also a terrible failing because it means that I don't grow up. And there was a time, you know, when I was living at Aryatara and I was 
pondering my future, about to go back to India again, because I came from India, you know, and I was at Aryatara, and, and then I was thinking about what to do. And I said to Banti, we were sitting in the kitchen, and I said, um, I'm, you know, I, I'm wondering about what to do next. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I thought of, you know, just being around here. He said, hmm, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> Crikey, this, this is getting real. Um, you know, and he's sort of sitting there, not looking at me. Hmm. It's very, very important for a, a young single man to mature. And there is this emotional immaturity that has been noticed. <laughs> um, if you got married and had children, you'd have to mature. I'm not saying you should get married, but you'd have to take responsibility for others. It doesn't really matter what you do. You could start a centre, you could become a hermit. You could write books. You could do this, you could do that, but it must come from you. It must come from you. And it was the most powerful feedback I'd ever had in my life. It was totally clean. It was nothing malicious. It was devastating, and, it, and you know, he said, all right then, I'm off to bed. And I, I felt as though my, my legs had been taken from me. And it was a brilliant, it was a brilliant sort of teaching that I've never forgotten, and uh, really had to learn from. And he kept reminding of it, and you know, I, I, in the end, I just decided to go and do more and more in India. And I was in Anagarika for a while, um, so I was a celibate. And um, then I had doubts about that. And he wrote me this letter, which I still have. It's one of the few letters that sort of survived my different moves. And he said, you know, I've heard that you're wondering about whether or not to carry on with being celibate. Um, he said, it's not good to be a wobbly Anagarika, a wobbly celibate. He said... Uh, you need, lovely expression, you know, he had these expressions. He said, you need to make up your mind either way. Be assured, whatever you decide, I won't think any the less of you. Um, in fact, uh, and then he said, uh, I know whatever decision you will make about this or any other matter in your life or for the movement and the order, you will make the best possible decision for yourself and others. And again, it was a real shock because he was expressing this confidence in me, knowing full well my, uh, my avoidance of that. And, uh, you know, all the time it was like that with him. You know, there were all the delightful contacts. So many stories I I'm not going to be able to tell you, but this was the message and it went right up to the end. So the last meeting I had with him, he was very old. He, he, he hadn't gone into his final illness. I went to see him at our place, Adistana, and I went in and I had a particular question for him. I'd heard that he was having read to him very, very critical material that with the order members were writing about him. You've probably heard all about, we use the euphemism, the controversies. Anyway, um, and he was getting lots and lots of criticism. He was having everyone read to him, everyone. And there were stories coming out that, you know, there was one particular one. He said, hmm, it's a little bit harsh, but it's very well written. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, very well written. So I said, look, Banty, why are you doing this? 
why are you having these things read to you? And uh, he said, well, I want to know the worst. I want, uh, I want to know the worst. He said, but not for me. He said, I don't really mind what people say about me. I don't care about that. I want to know the worst for the future of the order. He said, but actually, I'm completely confident in the future of the order. I don't have any concerns. And I said, look, yeah, but can we just go into this thing about you being criticised? I said, because I hate it. If I get any sense that somebody's unhappy with me or they criticise me, I hate it. I can't bear it. And the thought that you're actually having very personal criticism read to you, I mean, how, how have you got to that state? And he said, well, when I was a young man, you know, when I was in Kalimpong, I trained myself, um, you know, because there were criticism and there were praise. So every time I was criticised, I thought, or blamed, I'd think, hmm, next time I'll be praised. And every time I was praised, I thought, hmm, next time I'll be blamed. <laughs> so he said, I trained myself in, in learning that these are the worldly winds. So that was his sort of, in a way, final teaching to me. I, I mean, I'm, it's taking a while for me to get up to speed with that one. But um, in a way, his final teaching is his death. You know, uh, I, you know I think um, it's said in the Tibetan tradition that the ultimate thing that a teacher will do uh, for a disciple is to die and to go away and to leave you. Um, you know, to leave you with the teachings and you have to get on with it. And, uh, but I do miss Bhante still, um, even though we're trained in impermanence and all the rest of it, I do miss him. But I am so grateful to him because I have everything that I could possibly need in order to practice the Dharma meditation instructions, inspiration, absolutely clear teachings on the Dharma, friends, incredible friends incredible community. I mean, it goes on and on. So thank you, Bante. Um, here we are, Bante, in Berlin, celebrating wherever you are, in your pure land, or I don't know, maybe you've taken rebirth in Berlin, who knows? And <laughs> one day you're going to come along to this centre and you're going to be so awkward, you're going to be so difficult because you'll be so brilliant and, you know, us order members won't know what has hit us. Anyway, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.